we have a challenge in the American economy. I think this probably exists a little bit in the UK as well, as well as some other developed countries where the highest status in society goes sometimes to the jobs that don't always create the most social benefit or require the most amount of of intellect. Hello, this is Books Driving Change with me, Matthew Bishop, and today I'm talking with Ron Ganen, who is the founder of Closed Loop Partners and the author of a book, The Waste-Free World. Ron, I'm going to start by asking you in one sentence to tell our audience, which is people mostly who are committed to public service and exploring how they can get involved in building back better as we come out of the pandemic. Why should they read your book? The Waste-Free World provides readers a window into a economic structure that is more profitable and more equitable and preserves our natural resources. You know, your, your book opens with a description of one of the world's biggest landfill sites. And then you know, your first chapter is all about, um, the starts with the image of the masks uh, that we the, the medical staff used during COVID and how those were all designed to be thrown away after one use. Uh, which I thought were two you know, pretty powerful images. Tell us how we got into this mess with, with what, what you call the linear economy. There's two parts to what got us here. First was the Industrial Revolution, where we began to mass manufacture items. And then fast forward to World War II, where we took that massive production capability and focused it on making machinery and weaponry. And it was actually a good thing that we could do that because it's what we used to defeat Nazism. The challenge was post-World War II, that massive manufacturing machine needed something to continue to manufacture as opposed to uh, going back down to the size it was before the war. And what it decided to do was to just continue to manufacture just different types of things that people might need for their home in larger and larger quantities and worked with the burgeoning advertising uh, industry, as well as people in the U.S. government to change our perception of status from one of uh, quality over quantity and patriotism is all about resource conservation to one in which status was all about how much stuff you had and patriotism was not worrying about uh, conservation. It was worrying about uh, how much growth we have uh, taking place. And that shift is really the beginning of the linear economy uh, taking hold both in the U.S. and globally. I like the phrase you use, the, the take-make-waste economy, because I think you know, the essence of it is you know, th- that it was about exploitation of resources, um, making things, and then those things having waste built into it. And I, I thought your discussion quite early on about the emergence of the notion of built-in obsolescence and particularly in the context, actually, of, of a light bulb cartel in the early 20th century, you know, was fascinating. And, and, and you know, the idea that you would be, you know, 
in trouble with your cartel if you actually had a light bulb that lasted more than a certain amount of time. You know, I hadn't realized that, heard that story before. Can you tell us a bit more about you know, what happened to that cartel and you know, how did that all come about? Yeah, th- that's a great question. And I'll give you a recent example of uh, how that's finally beginning to change. And it'll be a sort of a shocking example and realization for a lot of people. So interestingly, when the light bulb was first invented, um, the original inventors and engineers working on the light bulb uh, knew that you could make a light bulb that would last a really, really long time, almost to the point where you barely needed to change it. But the business interest behind the engineers and the first light bulb companies looked at that innovation and said, that's not going to work for us. If you're able to manufacture light bulbs that never need to be changed out, how are we going to sell more and more light bulbs to people? And so what actually got introduced into the market were light bulbs that intentionally ran out during a certain amount of time so that the customer would then need to go buy more light bulbs. And so we all grew up in an economy, in a world under the assumption that you get a light bulb, you use it for a while, it runs out because that's the um, length that the technology can uh, provide us. And then you got to go to buy a new light bulb. But it actually has nothing to do with the technology of a light bulb. It really has to do with the interest of um, the, the money behind the original light bulb industry to make sure that light bulbs would eventually become obsolete and you would have to go buy uh, a new light bulb. The, the modern corollary to that is Apple this week announced that they're actually going to start selling tools that you can use to repair Apple products at home. This is a complete 180 from how Apple used to operate. Apple actually designed its products to actually become obsolete in six months, a year, two years. And it was impossible to fix an Apple product on your own. And in fact, if someone would try to open up a store in a neighborhood to fix an Apple product, Apple would legally go after them. Hopefully they'll also also make it possible to use the same charger from one generation of iPhones to the next as well. That would be nice. Exactly. Exactly. And and few people were questioning the contradiction around Apple seems to be made up of brilliant and visionary engineers who can develop these incredible products. But, But somehow the products only last a year. Nobody was questioning why do they only last a year? Can't they make them last longer? Why does my battery always go dead? And to your point, why when I then buy the next iteration of the product, why do I have to buy a whole new set of chargers? And it was really um, based on the economic model that a hundred years before the developers of the light bulb used, which was we have a product that is going to be in demand because it's going to make people's lives better. But if we actually offer the customer the full suite of the technology, we're not going to make as much money because the customer is not going to need to continually buy more and more and more versions uh, from us. And Apple adopted that model and did incredibly well financially, but it was done at the detriment of our environment because it produced huge amounts of electronic waste. Fortunately, Apple is now recognizing that there's a better way to to do business, which is 
try to maintain that customer for the life of the customer um, by enabling them to buy your product and buy the tools to continue to, uh, to fix it. Now, some people would say to, to, to criticize the business model that, that we've lived with for the last, however, 70 years, 80 years, is to be anti-capitalist. But in the book, you make the, the argument, I think quite persuasively, that um, what we see today is not, in fact, capitalism in a proper sense, but is a form of you know, socialism for the business community. Can you just explain that a bit? Uh, absolutely. I'll use the example of uh, virgin plastic versus recycled plastic. For years, uh, economists would say, well, if recycled plastic were cheaper, everybody would be using it. But we live in a free market. And the reality is virgin plastic is cheaper. And if we're going to allow the free market to work and if we're going to be capitalist, we need to allow businesses and individuals to buy the most cost competitive product. What economists weren't disclosing and what the oil industry was trying to keep hidden is that the oil and gas industry, which is the producer of, of plastics, receives billions and billions of dollars of tax subsidies from federal and state governments that artificially keep the price of virgin plastic low. So if we actually wanted to live in a free market, in a capitalist society, we would say either uh, no subsidies, or we would say the only uh, things that are going to receive subsidies are things that we know have a major societal benefit and we want to see um, be commonplace in society. Otherwise, we're just going to allow the free market to work. That's an example of how our economy was gained. You're seeing that actually fixed in the energy industry, where it, for years people would say, well, if solar and wind or renewable energies were cheaper than oil and gas, they would win in a free market economy. What economists and the oil and gas industry wasn't disclosing was all of the federal and state subsidies that the oil and gas industry got to keep their prices artificially low. As soon as solar and wind received the same subsidies and we had a, uh, a market in which everybody was fairly competing, not surprisingly, the price of oil, uh, excuse me, the price of uh, wind and solar renewable energy became much more competitive and now is now much cheaper. And you make a similar point about waste. And I thought, um, you know, obviously, you know, waste was not factored in to, or the, or the cost of disposing of waste was not factored into the price of, of products yeah. typically. And in fact, you know, as, as you say in the book, um, people who didn't even use products, their taxpayer money was being used yeah. to effectively subsidize people who did use the product because it was covering the cost of disposing of the waste. Um, and, and I think that's probably where we get to this notion of the circular economy as opposed to the linear economy. The linear economy is take, make, waste. The circular economy is what? The circular economy is being able to manufacture products without a reliance on natural resource extraction or disposal in landfill. And if we can build those types of manufacturing supply chains, we're going to significantly increase margins for consumer goods companies and retailers because they don't have to pay the cost of extraction. And we're going to lower costs for consumers and we're going to lower costs for taxpayers and municipalities because then you avoid the cost of disposing of products in landfills. So when did this idea of the circular economy start to catch on the phrase and, and, and so forth? And how, how, is, how is the idea spreading at the moment? 
It's, it's, it's an interesting question because the concept of the circular economy has been around since the earliest uh, products were invented by human beings. Even within the last hundred years, it was commonplace. So if you go back pre-1940, the way you got milk was the milkman brought milk to your door uh, in bottles. You used the milk and then you put the bottles back out. The milkman came, collected those bottles and gave you uh, new bottles of milk. All you were paying for was the milk. You weren't actually paying for the packaging. We then unfortunately evolved in a negative way to an economy where in order to buy a product, you must pay for packaging that required natural resource extraction. And then you also have to pay to dispose of that package in a landfill. That's a much more expensive way to consume a product. So the circular economy is something that's actually been the way human beings and and economies have operated since the beginning of when human beings started making products. It's really been in the last 75 years post-World War II that we unfortunately transitioned away from a circular economy to a linear economy, which is why us returning to a circular economy, I think, holds so much promise. It's something that we've practiced for centuries and successfully. And, you know, as you explore in, in your book, I mean, there, there are still challenges uh, to be overcome in terms of regulation and all sorts of things that need to be done. But you also see uh, great opportunities to invest in some of the companies that will hopefully be winners in the circular economy of the future. And uh, you have your you, you founded this fund, Closed Loop Partners. You just tell us a bit about what you do and what sort of companies you invest in. Closed Loop Partners is a investment firm and innovation center focused on building the circular economy. We focus on the following four industries, consumer products and packaging, fashion and apparel, electronics and food and ag. And within those four industry verticals, we have the ability to invest anywhere along the growth trajectory of a solution. We operate in four asset classes, venture, credit, growth equity, private equity, and then we also manage an innovation center. And so that gives us an ability to look at supply chains in those four industry verticals, identify a bottleneck, identify a solution, and then apply the right form of capital towards that solution. And if we don't find the solution to invest in, we lose our innovation center to uh, incubate that solution. And... At the moment, you're seeing lots of opportunities out there, or what's what's the environment like now? Uh, we're seeing a lot of opportunity out there. One of the unique things about our firm is uh, one of the group of LPs that we manage money for are the world's largest retailers, consumer goods companies, technology companies, and material science companies. And this is where they want to move their companies, especially their supply chains. And we're seeing a lot of uh tremendous innovation that we're investing in. And we're also seeing a number of best-in-class companies that are looking for capital to now uh, scale to meet the demands of some of the large uh, global companies. Now, we're talking not long after the COP26 meeting in Glasgow, which had a lot of things, a lot of attention, a lot of media. Um, The private sector was very present, very 
active. There were lots of discussions about private sector solutions, innovations, and so forth. And yet the event was really also about the politicians of the world coming together and trying to um, you know, come up with regulations and treaties and so forth that could actually deal with some of the climate change challenges and biodiversity challenges that we're facing. And my sense was for all the talk from the private sector, the the political leaders didn't really get their act together in a way that gives us much confidence that we're going to avoid a significant uh, increase in climate uh, change problems. Um, what's your take? And, and you know, what, what, where, how do you see the balance between the need for public sector action and what the private sector can do on its own? Well, I think with, with all social movements, what history tells us is there isn't any one thing that necessarily uh, creates uh, a tipping point or accelerates us to a new and better world. It's oftentimes uh, a series of events that galvanize together to create a, a tipping point. And so I think COP26 uh, served the purpose of bringing this issue uh, forefront and bringing a lot of excitement to the potential for a solution. But I think it also has its limitations where there were, it gave people too many opportunities to make bogus commitments. And what I mean by bogus commitments is any commitment that involves 2050, even 2040, it's, it's a bogus commitment. We're talking about over 25 years from now. Uh, if a public company tried to make a commitment for 2050 around its sales or its costs or anything else, uh, people would be very annoyed and frustrated. But mm. when it comes to climate or this issue, people are applauded when they make commitments to 2050. And I think that's where events like COP26 need to be careful. I think if it can start to focus more on, uh, you're welcome to be a COP26. It's a big tent. We need everybody in this tent. But if you're in this tent, you're talking in time frameworks of one year, three years, five years, maximum 10 years. Otherwise, so, it's just not really relevant. So being in favor of the circular economy doesn't mean you have to buy all these pledges on net zero and take them seriously. If something isn't between today and 2030, I pretty much tune it out. It's not really relevant to this fear of what's taking place in the near future. And the world is going to look so different in 2030 that the commitment you make in 2021 is going to have little to no relevance. I think we need to galvanize everyone's energy around what are we doing this year? What are we doing in the next three years, five years, seven years, 10 years? That doesn't mean that the problem is going to be solved by 2030, but we will solve the largest portion of the problem or make the most headway if we focus on trying to solve as much of the problem as we possibly can by 2030. And then, and then in 2030 or 2029, we can reevaluate where we are and what does that next one year, three year, five year, seven, 10 year commitment need to be to 2040? But for right now, let's focus on what we can do in those one, three, five, seven, 10 year increments. Now, 
you know, obviously government policy, as we've already discussed, is crucial to enabling the private sector to orient itself around a circular economy as opposed to this linear take make waste economy. Um, you, know, you go into this in quite a lot of depth in the book, but what for you are the biggest is, is the biggest idea that we that we need our politicians to take action on if we're going to accelerate the circular economy? The cost of waste cannot be shared by the commons. Unfortunately, the way waste management was structured from a pricing standpoint, and this was intentional uh, and driven by certain industries that saw this in their financial best interest. It was not structured this way in the financial best interest of, of the citizen. Is If you think about how uh, water is priced as utility, it's priced at the household level. You pay for the water you use. If you think about energy, it's priced at the household level. You use the uh, you pay for the energy you want to use. Nobody would accept sharing in the cost of their neighbor's water or in their neighbor's electricity. Unfortunately, waste is priced as a common charge, meaning you put your garbage out, the city comes and picks it up, and the cost of picking it up and disposing of it for everybody is spread, is spread across uh, all taxpayers. And that type of system rewards uh, laziness. It rewards... Um, wastefulness. And that's, I think, the biggest change that needs to happen is we need to price waste both at the residential level and at the corporate level uh, as a utility, and the producer should, should pay. And if we can move towards that kind of system, that'll create major motivation and major incentive to reduce waste. Is anyone doing that? There are communities in the United States that have what's called pay-as-you-throw, where you pay for whatever you uh, throw into the landfill. And in those communities, you see much higher recycling rates. You're starting to see some states led by Maine, interestingly, small uh, Maine, and, and big California around the concept of extended producer responsibility, where um, the legislature and policymakers are telling large publicly traded companies who sell products in their states, you're welcome to sell whatever you want. You're welcome to sell it for however much you want, but you're going to be the co- you're going to be responsible company for the disposal of your product and landfill. That's not going to be the responsibility of the general taxpayer. If you sell that product and you collect the revenue, record the profit on your balance sheet, you're going to also have to record the liability of it going to a landfill. If it goes to a landfill, that liability can no longer sit on the taxpayer's uh, account. So your personal journey is quite an interesting one in terms of you started out uh, working in a, recyc- in a recycling company and then you joined the Bloomberg administration in, in New York City as a, as a commissioner overseeing recycling before you've gone into uh investing in in circular economy firms in your current role um one of the themes that we're very interested in at driving change is well, how do we get more people of talent uh, and who get some of these big questions like climate change and what we do about it how do we get them into government um, because it seems like there's a, it's a real challenge to get mm. talented people into government now and how do we 
keep them there, or, or should we even be trying to keep them there? Is, is it be, is it good that they follow the kind of uh, multi-sectoral pathway that you've been following? It's a really important question. I think doing public service for part or some of your career is a great opportunity, and I would encourage anyone listening that if they have the urge or find the opportunity, whether it be for a year, for 10 years, to definitely pursue it. It's an important uh, thing, I think, to to do. Uh, And I personally uh, learned a lot uh, in that experience. I think, how do you get uh, more people to go and do it? I don't think there's one simple answer. I think there's a, a few answers. One is, you know, you can have a inspirational leader like a a Mayor Bloomberg that uh, creates tremendous positive energy about what's possible in the city. And you attract a lot of talent that just wants to be part of that person's administration. I think Barack Obama uh, was also able to accomplish that. So that's one one way of uh, doing it. I think another way of doing it is just creating status and appreciation around that type of job. I think we have a challenge in the American economy, I think this probably exists a little bit in the UK as well, as well as some other uh, developed countries where the highest status in society goes sometimes to the jobs that don't always create the most social benefit or um, require the most amount of, of intellect. And that's not taking anything away from those jobs or those people or those positions. It's just the jobs of teacher, fire person, police person, public servant, soldier. These are these are the jobs that are the backbone of our society. And unfortunately, the status that's assigned to those jobs and the financial incentive that's assigned to those jobs is low in society. And that creates a perverse incentive to drive some of the smartest people into the least productive uh, jobs. And I think if we could find a way to change that view of the status of those roles, I think that would have a big impact. Because it's interesting. I mean, I I remember talking to Michael Bloomberg when he was mayor, and he definitely had a sense that on some of the issues he cared most about, for example, reducing smoking, um, he was able to achieve far more as, as mayor with the powers that you have in politics. Uh, than he was you know, as a private philanthropist. Um, I don't know if he still holds that view as he looks at issues like climate change, where he's, you know, very active through his philanthropy. But I mean, is it? I mean, do you feel like you're going to achieve more now in your current role, or than than you could have done in government? I, I think you can have tremendous impact in all of those roles, and I think that um, if you want to have impact, find the role that suits you best, where you can have the most impact. And there's some people that are uh, designed to be able to maximize their impact in public service. There's some people that are designed to be able to maximize their impact in by being in the financial sector. There's some people that are uh, designed to have the most impact by being a journalist. And I think people should uh, find what that calling is at that moment in time in their life and pursue that. Um, Mike Bloomberg has had a unique and very special life where he's been able to have that impact in uh, the private sector, in government, uh, and, as a, and as a philanthropist. Uh, and that, that's, that's rare. I'm not sure that 
we should all be able to aspire to, 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 to that. Um, and so I think people should just find their calling and, and have the most impact wherever that calling is. So one last question. Um, as, as you, you know, you set out this agenda in the waste-free world, how the circular economy will take less, make more and save the planet. As you look at the next 12 months, what's, what do you feel like is the number one priority for the, the world to sort of take that movement forward? Economic justice. I think that without a sense of economic justice for most people, we're going to continue to inhibit this transition to a cleaner economy and moving away from climate change. I think that there's so many people in the world that are just barely getting by, trying to engage them on a lifestyle change that doesn't include helping them live a better and more secure life is um, counterproductive. And I think we really need to figure out a way to merge the climate change conversation with the economic uh, justice conversation. And I mean, you've opened up a huge area there, but what, 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 is, yeah, what, what, what would you see as being a sign of progress on that front? Uh, if you look at the amount of government subsidies over the past 50 years that have gone to the oil and gas industry and the amount of wealth that's been generated by executives in those industries, really on the back of the taxpayer, let's uh, move away from these ridiculous and historically interact, in, inaccurate conversations around government shouldn't uh, be involved or government doesn't have the money. Let's just agree to take the same amount of government taxpayer-funded money that was used to fund the oil and gas industry. That, that's just that exact amount. And let's use it to provide subsidies for poor people to get access to clean renewable energy. And let's just use that as a starting point. And I think we'd find a much more equitable, socially healthy, and much environmentally cleaner world. Well, that sounds like a plan. Uh, let's hope it happens. Let's work to make it happen. Um, Ron Ganen, thank you very much for talking to Books Driving Change about your book, The Waste-Free World, How the Circular Economy Will Take Less, Make More, and Save the Planet. It's a great book. Um, I recommend it to all our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. Great speaking with you today. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.